Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergetinos. We're in volume one. And uh, last week, we just started a new hypothesis, uh, 25, beginning on page 207 in the text, if you're following along. And we are picking up this evening uh, with paragraph number four. And the hypothesis focuses on the fact that evil is easy and that many choose this path and virtue is demanding and very few choose to walk along this path. And so the, the fathers call us to emulate the saints and those who've gone before us. And, uh, and we're given story after story as usual, beautiful, uh, about the challenges of living the life of, of virtue, uh, but also how to navigate some of the wiles of the evil one. So again, we're on paragraph number four. Wayne, good to see you from Canada. Jack, good to see you. Abba Poyman besought Abba Macarius with many tears. Tell me, how am I to be saved? The elder replied to him, what you are seeking has now departed from monastics. So within every generation, there is the, the need to uh, immerse ourselves in the, the, the gospel, to embrace for ourselves the faith, to repent of our sin, and to enter into the ascetic life, to embrace the wisdom uh, that comes to us from the spiritual tradition. And often there is a kind of waxing and waning uh, that we see from generation to generation or within uh, our uh, particular generation. And certainly this was true within among the monastics, the early monastics as well. And um, they could already begin to see a kind of cooling take place in the fervor of the, the monks and uh, where one would embrace the, the trappings, perhaps of the monastic garb or of the common life. Uh, but lose something of the zeal for the Lord and for conversion of life. And so this will be a great deal of the focus of the sayings here tonight. But we hear Abba Poyman Ab, ask Abba Mercarius about this, uh, that the very thing that he seeks, what is at the heart of the spiritual life, you know, where does salvation come from, or how does one make one's way along that path? Abba Macarius is rather blunt with him, telling him what you're seeking has now departed from the monastics, that they had become lukewarm in their pursuit of the Lord, but also in their pursuit of the ascetic life. And uh, I think when, within our own lives, we can see this happen from time to time, uh, that we can be driven for a period of time, and then either because of the trials of our life or uh, the sort of lack of consolation, perhaps, that we experience, our, our zeal for the ascetic life as a whole, for prayer, our desire for the Lord can cool. And, uh, and so, again, with, as with every generation, we have to live in a constant state of repentance, of turning toward the Lord, in order that our desire for him might continue to grow. As we've talked about so often in the past, there is no static position in the spiritual life, that we always have to be seeking the Lord and desiring him, moving toward him. Or if things become static or stagnant, then we become more vulnerable, certainly to the evil one or to our own passions. And our desire for the Lord can, can weaken. And um, I think this is an important point for us, uh, that we can't allow ourselves to, to fall into that static position. Uh, sometimes fatigue itself can do it for us, where we begin to allow ourselves to drift or follow the, along with the current. But what ends up happening is that we begin to be drawn along by the current of the world and, and away from the Lord and our zeal for him. And things begin to take place of, uh, of the life of prayer as well as the other spiritual disciplines. And so this is what Abba Marcarius tells him. You're not going to find it as it presently exists within the monastic life, which is a sad statement indeed. And I think when we look at our own time, you know, we can see a great deal of good. And certainly we, we know that there are many people who live the faith and live it heroically. 
but we also know the the power of our culture and all the things that pull even those who are men and women of faith away from the heart of the gospel but also this constant call to repentance to be turned toward him paragraph number five abba john recounted what one of the elders had seen in an ecstatic vision Behold, three monks were standing on the opposite shore of the sea. They came to them, there came to them a voice from the other side which said, take up flaming wings and come to me. Two of them took up flaming wings and flew to the other side. The others stayed and shed many tears and cried aloud and eventually took up not fiery wings, but weak and powerless wings. He toiled, sinking and rising again, and finally, after much toil, reached the other side. So it is with this generation. Although it takes up wings, they are not flaming, but utterly weak and powerless. And so, beautiful little story. And it reminds me of the story of Abba Lot and Abba Joseph, uh, that uh, when there is, uh, sort of a, a limited view even of what it is that God offers us or the power of his grace uh, that we can fall into a kind of pattern of living out the, the life of faith, uh, very much like the, the rich man in the gospel uh, who kept all the commandments. And indeed, this is what uh, the young monk said to uh, Abba Joseph about, or Abba Lot, I'm sorry, uh, about his life, that he was living the rule, he had kept the commandments, what else must he do? And if you remember from the story, he lifts up his fingers and they become like 10 lanterns uh, of fire. And he says to him, why not become all fire? And uh, this little story that we just read reminds me of that, that what, what they are called to do in this ecstatic vision is to take up flaming wings, to be able to fly, to the Lord who's calling them. And two of them are able to do this, but the third falters, uh, even though he's struggling and desires it on one level. Uh, and yet there often isn't this sense, I think, of what it is that God has called us to be in him and what he's given us through his grace, through the Eucharist, through the gift of his spirit, through the other sacraments. Uh, it's not simply goodness of, of life or uh, not even simply the avoidance of sin, uh, one modern elder tells us, that we're called to something far more. It is to be conformed, to be configured to Christ himself, to become Christ through what it is that we receive. And so the virtue that we are called to is his virtue, and the strength that we are called to is strength. And similarly, his holiness is to become our own. And this is what this image and the one about Abba Joseph and Abba Lot tell us, that we are called to allow ourselves to be uh, consumed by this, the spirit of the Lord, set aflame by the desire of the Lord, uh, in order that we might be more and more conformed to him, that we might take on his holiness. This is what has been made possible for us. And it's easy for us, I think, to slide into a kind of mediocrity, uh, not, not necessarily in a conscious way, but in, in losing sight of our dignity and destiny in Christ. What, what is our identity now in and through him uh, in light of the cross, but also in light of what we receive in the Holy Sacraments and certainly in the gift of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. We are temples of, of the Spirit. And so God's very spirit dwells within us. So what does that mean in terms of how we live our life from day to day and moment to moment? And so even if we're living out our faith life, we might not be conscious of the greater reality that we are called to, to manifest in our, our life at every single moment. Uh, we can put on that identity, but perhaps not fully. And I think this is what's captured within the story, that there is one who is struggling to get to the other side, but never is able to put on those, as it were, uh, flames, or I'm sorry, wings of flame. 
So it's a very challenging image that's put before us. Again, I think we can sort of relegate this in our mind to something that, uh, you know, is hyperbole perhaps, or uh, a pious story of the fathers rather than seeing it as a reflection of the greater reality in which we are called to live. Any comments so far on anything that's been said? So you can see where we're headed. It's going to be a rather challenging hypothesis. Not that the rest of them haven't been, but uh, this has to do with the pursuit of, of, of goodness and a virtue of holiness. Paragraph six, the Holy Fathers prophesied about the last generation saying to each other in wonderment, what have we achieved? One of them, Abba Iscarion, the, a great elder replied, we have fulfilled the commandments of God. The other said, what about those who will come after us? What will they do? The elder answered, they will accomplish half of our work. And again, the fathers asked, what about those who come after them? Abba Iscarion replied, the men of that generation will accomplish no work at all. Temptation will come upon them. But those who are found worthy in that epoch will be greater than we and, and our fathers. So there will come a time, he's telling them, there will come a generation where nothing will be accomplished in terms of uh, bearing witness to the faith, uh, you know, a kind of post-Christian age or anti-Christian age. Uh, and where the, the faithful drifted away from the gospel altogether. And then we are told that those who are found worthy in this time will be greater than all the fathers uh, that have come before them. That to live the faith in, in the world that has wholly turned away from God and where the majority of the faithful have turned away from God will, will require a heroic kind of faith and virtue that uh, will be greater than all the, all the saints and the monastics that have gone before. And um, I know we probably all would want to apply this to our time and our generation. And I, I think there are certain aspects of it that are uh, true, you know, that we, we live a, in a, a day in an age where uh, the culture does not certainly support the faith, but the culture of the church itself has broken down in, in the sense of it's forming us in the life of the gospel in a deep and abiding way. Uh, and in terms of all of our desires, all of our longings being directed towards God, and that that relationship shapes every element of our life. And so to, to live the, the faith life in our day and age requires more than you know, uh, a kind of mediocre commitment or half-hearted commitment that one has to be have both feet, as it were, in the kingdom, not one foot in this world and one foot in the kingdom. Uh, that uh, we have to be prepared and willing, I think, in our day and age, to be seen as crazy. Uh, I came across a little quote from. A uh, Russian Orthodox priest named uh, Father Seraphim Rose, who died, I don't know, maybe it was 40 years ago, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, but he said something along this line, that to, to live as a Christian in our day and age, there has to be this willingness on our part to be seen as peculiar by the people of our times. That there's nothing about the gospel that is going to speak to the world in our age as being normal that uh, the, the gospel is, as we've talked about many times before, a revolutionary text. And what we see in Christ himself and his own witness, his own death on the cross, the gift of himself in the Eucharist is something that's completely foreign uh, to this world. And so to live that reality, to become Eucharist, to allow ourselves to be broken and poured out in love, to have our love uh, be become and take on the, the shape uh, of the cross to become cruciform is to be seen as crazy.
by the world around us and perhaps by those who are close to us or even those within our families. And, uh, and so I don't think what is being spoken about here in this paragraph is too far off from what we would experience in our day and age and what we are called to. And fundamentally, I think what every generation is called to, to live for God and live for him alone not simply for ourselves and the things of this world. So this brings us to the little break from the writings from the Drontcon. Anyone have any comments or questions that you would like to put forward? Nice chatting group tonight. From St. Ephraim the Syrian, one of my favorites, uh, along with Isaac the Syrian, one of the great uh, writers, uh, spiritual writers of his time. He writes, my beloved, when you see those who are advanced in the monastic life being negligent, watch out and fortify yourself, lest in emulating them, you traverse the same path yourself and inherit eternal punishment with them. Or again, do not make a show of your temperance and vaunt yourself against them, thereby falling into haughtiness. If you do, you will be in the enemy's hands. But attend to yourself and guard yourself intently, for we are not justified or condemned by the deeds of others. Rather, when we are brought before the judge, naked and with, with our necks bowed, each will give an account of himself and bear his own burden. This is why it is always good to attend to yourself and to imitate those who live their lives according to God, looking to them, and becoming like them. So, uh, providing great counsel here that uh, when we find ourselves surrounded, or if a monk finds himself surrounded by those who are being negligent or lazy in the life, that they are not to become despondent by this, or, nor are they to allow themselves to be drawn along uh, with it and uh, become negligent in their own spiritual life. Uh, but rather they are to, to look to those who are holy and to emulate them. Uh, but at the same time, they are not to allow their own temperance, temperance uh, their own uh, uh, sort of moderating of their appetites, their desires. They're not to allow their own fidelity to the role than to make them haughty, uh, as it were, in looking upon their monks who are negligent because they would equally fall into the hands of the evil one in doing so by giving themselves over to a kind of pride. And so in the spiritual life, it becomes essential for us to be, be, be and remain focused uh, upon ourselves and what's going on within our own hearts, knowing that eventually we will all stand before God and have to give an account for our lives. And we, we cannot make the others the standard of how does we live our lives. If others are living negligent, uh, in a negligent fashion, we can't make that the standard uh, for how we live our lives. Well, at least we don't do that, or at least we're more temperate, uh, nor we uh, to allow ourselves simply to be drawn along with that. Our standard is always to be that of the cross and of Christ himself. And we are to keep our eyes ever fixed upon him. Uh, this is what is to, to shape and guide our, our life in, in Christ. And uh, I think this is often a struggle for us uh, to look to others uh, or to other, you know, other uh, matters within the life of the church to turn a critical eye away from ourselves. And this always weakens that spirit of repentance, our capacity to be turning toward God. It's our own weakness, our own infidelity, our own poverty that makes us reach out and cling to him, as well as to seek his mercy and grace. The moment that we begin to shift that attention on to other things, even if they seem just and worthy, or even if they seem obviously problematic in terms of their moral or spiritual nature, we, we pull ourselves away from where our, our eyes need to be focused. And because in the end, uh, we can't point to others uh, in the moment of our own judgment. 
we, again, we all have to give an account for our own life. And if you turn your mind to the gospel and think of the, the, uh, the foolish virgins who uh, do not replenish their lamp and wanting to borrow oil for their lamp, and they're unable to do that at the moment when the bridegroom comes, uh, in a similar way, we cannot borrow faith, we cannot borrow virtue from another, nor can we blame the negligence and keeping those lamps, lamp, lamps full and burning hotly, keeping the, our desire alive for the Lord. We can't blame uh, our failure to do that on, on others at the time of judgment. And so it's not that we become self-focused in the sense that we don't see what's going on around us or we lose sight of the charity that we're to show to others. But it, there's a movement that takes place from our worship and our love of God to then our love of neighbor. That the, the love of God is the first uh, of the commandments. And we are to love our neighbor then as ourself, but our capacity to do that flows out of the complete gift of ourself to the Lord. And our the depth of our desire for him. And again, the moment that we are negligent of that relationship uh, or we, when we, that desire for him grows cold, then our, either our focus shifts to others or we, we, we simply grow lukewarm ourselves. Any comments or questions so far? Okay. Do not vie with those who neglect their own salvation and who acquire the monastic habit from mere external appearance, so as not to resemble a soldier taken over by the enemy, who bearing the king's emblem, nonetheless serves the king's enemies. For he who he does not lie, who says, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. For the monastic habit is like leaves on a tree, while deeds are the tree's fruits. Do not concern yourself then with outer appearance or seek to emulate such men, justifying yourself by saying, you are no worse than others who fall into passions. Rather bring to mind the saying that in a great mansion, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also wooden and earthenware ones. Some are valuable, others are not. If then you disobey the Lord by accomplishing the works of sin, you are a worthless vessel. But if you do the works of the Lord, you will be a chosen vessel, prized, sanctified, and useful to the master, ready for every good deed. So again, here in this paragraph, we, we find Ephraim sharpening his focus even more or working to sharpen our own, that we, we cannot, uh, again, vie with others, you know, in the sense of looking to their neglect and seeing ourselves as, as at least not falling into that, not co committing those particular sins, uh, as well as not using the, their sinfulness or the path that they have taken as an excuse for our own lukewarmness. What we have to be attentive to is the higher calling, uh, just like the, the monk has to be attentive to the higher calling that's behind the habit that he embraces. And the, the higher calling behind the habit that he embraces is the death to self and the death to the things of this world in order to live fully for Christ. And it's only his deeds then that are going to be the, the fruit that is worthy uh, of the kingdom. And the, he is to produce the fruit of repentance and uh, if he is without that, then wearing the habit means absolutely nothing. As in the same way that leaves on a tree, you know, eventually fall and uh, fall into nothingness. It's really only the fruit of the tree that ha has value. Eric Chastain. Eric writes, what's the balance between focusing only on our own sin to stir repentance and looking at those of others when you will incur sin by saying nothing about the sin of others, for example, when fraternal correction is obligatory and when there are sins against justice. 
I think what the, the fathers try to emphasize here is the order of things. And it's only when one has lived many years in this spirit of repentance, or as we've read about in, pre, in the previous hypotheses, uh, when one has lived under obedience for many years and been formed and shaped by that, when the, the heart has been purified, then does the capacity develop to discern with a kind of clarity and for this reason, we've heard that those who are put in the positions of being uh, abbots or novice masters or spiritual directors or elders are only those who have lived a life of obedience and virtue for, for many years, who have been tested themselves uh, by life in community or have been tested by the temptations of the evil one. And so there is always a hesitancy that we find in the fathers to direct the eye towards others at all prior to praying for them and taking upon oneself sacrifices on, on their behalf to see their struggle as one's own. And I think we can be very quick in our spiritual life to notice those failures and to take up that charge of fraternal correction rather than taking up the burden of a brother or sister in the faith as if it was our own and begin to engage in that struggle that they are having uh, as if it is our own. So seeking to strengthen them first by our life of prayer, the ascetic life as a whole, through our relationship with them and our personal witness in the life of virtue. These are all the things that are to be in place before we would take upon ourselves the responsibility of offering that fraternal correction. And I think what happens when we become disconnected from the spiritual tradition, the wisdom of, of the elders, is that we lose sight of that. I think what we hold on to is this sense, well, I have this responsibility. All of a sudden, it becomes an act of love on our part to uh, offer that correction of another, when in reality, most often, it's uh, an act of ego, you know, and there can be a kind of morbid delight in being able to offer that correction to another, that we're not driven by love or the desire for their salvation as much as we desire our own. And so getting back to your question, what's the balance? The balance only comes uh, in and through the grace that God gives through a life of continual conversion and repentance uh, of a soul that's been tested over the course of years and, and whose heart has been purified uh, by you know, living in the grace of God and striving for virtue. And so, the balance, I think, comes when a person sees himself or herself as completely unworthy of engaging in the act of correction or, and is slow to do so before having done all the things that I just mentioned. And, you know, I think if we look at our own day, and again, I don't want to make our generation the worst of all, but I think there is a critical spirit that permeates uh, the life of the church. You know, there is great division within the church, uh, but there is this kind of uh, hypercritical spirit uh, that we often fall into, uh, where we are quick to notice what is lacking. And that, you know, and in that we, it betrays a kind of lack of charity and love and a lack of a sense of solidarity, the radical solidarity that exists between us uh, both in our struggle with sin, uh, but also our union and communion in Christ. And what we find is great agitation of heart and hostility toward the other. And so I think a kind of stillness, uh, a generosity of spirit, a love for the other is the, the compass for us as, as we move forward. You know, that we could look upon the other with the eyes of love. And uh, it was interesting, you know, as in this weekend's gospel in the Byzantine Rite, it was 
Jesus giving this parable uh, about a master who le leaves his property uh, to tenant farmers to care for. And he sends emissaries back over and over to them. And they treat each of them brutally, cruelly, and begin to kill them. And, uh, and then finally he sends his son thinking, they will, they will embrace my son and they will, they will listen to him. And they put the son to death as well. And looking at this parable, I began to see, well, it's, it's not a, a parable in the, in the usual sense that we think of a parable as having moral or uh, religious instruction tied to it. It's directed specifically in this instance to the scribes and the Pharisees who had been growing in their animosity towards Christ and what he was teaching. And he directs this parable, if you will, toward them, trying to draw them away from this ever greater movement of animosity towards him. And uh, the verses that fall immediately upon it is, speaks of their desire then to uh, accuse him falsely of blasphemy. And they begin to plot together on how to destroy him how to put him to death. But what is beautiful about the passage is that here is Christ is facing his own destruction. He sets aside his own safety and he directs this parable toward them and this kind of last hope to draw them out of this hostility and this pride that had blinded them. And so again, the balance and the focus uh, comes to us by keeping our attention upon Christ himself, how it is that he treated his enemies or those who are deeply immersed in their sin, whatever it might be. And the constant desire was to draw them out of it. And even here, he himself uses this parable, you know, rather than attacking them directly or angrily, he uses this parable to try to instruct them to pull them along a different path. Eric, you still have your hand up. Do you, do you have a follow-up or? or Okay, there it is. Are you saying that there, therefore, until there is a preparatory work, helping the other, carrying their burden, loving them, praying, sacrificing for them, etc., fraternal correction is not obligatory under pain of sin, if the original desire to engage in fraternal correction was not from a spirit of critical judgment, but just the desire to avoid sin. Uh, yes, I, I think I would be saying that, that, you know, that we don't see something like fraternal correction as abstracted from our own relationship with Christ and our relationship with other, the bond of love that exists and what Christ has created, how deep and intimate that bond with each other has become. And so and until we are able to look upon the other and discern whether or not we are looking upon them with love and genuine desire uh, to uh, bring them to a place of healing, then our, ours is, our position is silence and not an empty silence as if we are ignoring their struggle, but again, taking it upon ourselves as if it is our own. In order that if we then do re reach a stage where we, we feel and have discerned that we need to say something, it is coming from that place of genuine love. Okay. Can we correct? Uh, Yes, you know, I think, again, it depends upon the relationship that we have with the other. And, okay, you have more corrective feedback. Uh, are you asking, I'm not sure what you're asking, to priest or friends? Yes, you know, I understand that this is part of love, and we find it within the gospel. Uh, but within the gospel, we even find it described in a certain kind of way, 
that it's done privately uh, so that there is not humiliation. When it's not received, we bring another with us and then, and then we bring it to the church. That there is this whole process that I think is that we leapfrog over in our own day. And when we fall into this kind of critical spirit and you know what the fathers and in particular, for example, John Cassian puts as the immediate aim of the spiritual life is purity of heart. And it is this purity of heart that uh, gives a person the capacity to discern because otherwise we are being driven by our passions, whether we're conscious of them or not. And so it's being ourselves uh, purified and tested over the course of time and living under the guidance of a spiritual elder that that purity of heart begins to emerge. So I, I would say that when we are in the spiritual life that uh, we would leave that to those who are in a position to offer that correction. And if we are in a relationship that allows us uh, to take that opportune moment to offer correction where there is a bond of love that does exist between two people, then I think there is greater freedom to do that. Uh, but I think always with great humility and caution, again, that we are not being driven uh, you know, by this desire for, for, for justice or truth that is shaped by our own judgment or our own opinion or vision of things, and that is not uh, seen through the, the lens or through the eyes of Christ himself. That what we see in Christ uh, as he comes in, into this world is the love of sinners and the desire to lift them up and, uh, and to do that in a particular way. And the, the, the ones who are most uh, incapable of receiving him are the ones who believe they have no sin or are sort of bound by their own pride. Uh, but I think what we see there in the witness is this uh, uh, depth of mercy and depth of forgiveness that is also to shape our approach to others. And the, the reason I'm taking this line is, you know, certainly because of what the fathers are saying, but I think also what I, I see is prevalent in our own day and culture and within the, again, within the church itself, this very quick movement to, to correction. And I'm suspicious of it and would be suspicious of it in myself as well uh, because of the disconnect that I see from the spiritual tradition that forms and shapes the heart. It's one thing to know about Christ and know about his teachings or the teachings of the church with the mind, with the intellect and reason. It's another thing to, to know, the, know Christ with the heart and to see him in and through the eyes of faith, but also to look upon the other in our life, whoever it might be, uh, with the same heart that has been shaped and purified. Carol. Carol writes, if you want to find rest in this life and the next, say at every moment, who am I? And judge no one from the sayings of the Desert Fathers. Right. And, you know, this is a, a good thought. Who am I? is always the fundamental question for us. And um, one little story that comes to mind is this practice that Francis of Sisi used to uh, engage in almost as a prayer on a day-to-day -day basis. He would ask two questions. Who are you, God? Who am I? And whenever I, I hear that story or hear this aspect of his life, it always seems to me to be, the perfect questions, they are the perfect questions. Who are you, God? Who am I? It keeps our focus where it needs to be, that we are asking God for the grace to see the truth about uh, his own revelation of himself to us, but we are also to see the truth about ourselves, whether we are living in conformity with the life that he's called us to. 
And again, you know, if this is shaping our consciousness as well as our conscience, then it's going to shape the way that we engage others about the ways that they are struggling. Angela. Um, yes, that, that uh, question of St. Francis um, was a question that uh, was present for me for many years, um, but more out of uh, anxiety and almost um, anger um, when things were not going well for me. Uh, I would accuse God of who are you, you know, and met a good 10 years later, I was reading um, a book by Catherine of Siena. And she, in prayer, said the same thing. She said, oh, God, who are you? And by the way, who am I? Mm -hmm. But she said it with great love, whereas I was saying it with um, anger, with passion. And he responded to her by saying, I am who is and you are who is not. That really helped me. Right. Yeah. Beautiful story and I think it does help pull things together here a little bit that our identity and meaning uh, comes from from God himself the source of meaning and when you know when we read the gospel and we hear the word became flesh logos uh, Pope Benedict the 16th once said that one of the meanings of this is that meaning became flesh that we, see who God is, but we also see who and what we are to be in and through the incarnation. It's in Christ that we, you know, we, we stand before him as the mirror, if you will, and we gaze upon him to see what our identity is in God and what our life is to look like. And so sometimes these simple questions are often really cut to the heart of things in the most beautiful way. I think we can get tied up in questions that we really would come down the, the line for us, or really aren't the most important questions for us to be asking. Whereas Catherine of Siena and Francis of Assisi both understood that the, the most important questions are, who are you and who am I? This is what is to shape our life and our, our existence and the way that we see others as well. Ambrose Little, let's hear what the, another Dominican has to say about things. Your advice is direct from the lips of our Lord. You hypocrites, remove the wooden beam from your eye first, and then you will see clearly to remove the splinter from your brother's eye. Too often we believe we've already removed the beam when, I, when we haven't at all. Excellent. And that's true, you know, I think, and those, and when we have that beam in our eye, we see beams everywhere. And so naturally then we are going to want to be removing that splinter from everybody else's eyes because that's what we're seeing. We're seeing this huge beam that blocks our whole field of vision. And so rather than looking at ourselves and, uh, removing the things that obstruct our vision, that uh, take away purity of heart from us, we are being attentive to what's weak or, or what the flaws are in another, what the obstacles are for them. So thank you. I mean, it's, it bring, again, brings things into focus. Seeing our, and Eric writes, seeing our own faults in another is called projection. Right, psychologically and spiritually, we, we do this often. We will project onto God and some, and some things and onto others, uh, things that we struggle with ourselves. And so we often project an image onto God uh, that really is rooted in this image that we have had of ourselves or of others in our life that really is not a reflection of what God has revealed of himself. And we project onto others often the, the very weaknesses that we struggle with the most as well. Psychology, unfortunately, has helped us to do that because we've found all these interesting little names to describe it. You know, they're a narcissist or, <laughs> or something along those lines. And uh, 
it makes it easy for us to identify those things and give it a name. Why don't we move on a little bit more with, with, with the text? So we're at the top of page 209. Cherish good company, but keep away from bad company since no sorcerer, brigand, or grave robber was ever born such, but learned these things from men whose minds were corrupted by Satan. For God made all things exceedingly good, do not take delight in baths, drinking, gatherings in the marketplace, and luxury, lest you fall into fatal dangers. Also, keep in mind the affliction of sinners, lest you should one day be reckoned among them. Have you never entered a home where people were in mourning, and after seeing the lamentation and the wailing, hastened to depart from that house? Hence it is that we make conjectures about eternal realities on the basis of temporal phenomena. For the Old Testament says, give an, give an opportunity to a wise man and he will become wiser. Be guileless in accepting commandments of God, but crafty in repelling the wiles of the devil and in cutting off harmful relationships so that your inner man may be at peace. So, how we live our life and the situations that we place ourselves in, including the company that we keep, all has an effect upon us. And I think the image here is very good that all God has created all things good and that the, the brigand, the grave robber, the sorcerer don't become that at birth, that they are exposed to certain things that draw them along that path. Uh, typically by being around such individuals. And so for those who are seeking to live a holy life, that they want to, to be around those who are living and have embraced the gospel fully in order that they might emulate them. And so he warns, uh, Ephraim warns those who are reading his text here, you know, not to delight in the things of this world lest we are drawn into certain dangers. And for a monk, certainly, some of these sound, might sound funny to our ears, delight in taking baths or drinking uh, or gathering in the marketplace. Uh, you know, taking a bath would be a luxury for a desert monk. And so, you know, to be dreaming about a, a hot bath when you've entered into the desert, <laughs> you know, uh, or to worry about your you know, bodily cleanliness would be contrary. You know, their, their minds would be, you know, they would be daydreaming about the things of this world. And so they're to keep their, their focus. Instead, we are told here on the affliction of, of sinners, lest you should one day become among them, one among them. That again, we can't think that we live, and I mentioned this at the beginning of the group, in a static kind of position. Uh, just as when we, we are in this constant state of receptivity through all of our senses, uh, we are also in a constant state of receptivity through the encounters that we have with the things of this world and with others. And we cannot neglect the fact that we are, are going to be subject to influence, positive or negative. And, and in fact, you know, in the spiritual life, it is personal influence that is the, one of the most powerful of things. You know, the constant witness of the saints. Uh, this is how influence of others uh, uh, is great or how evangelization often takes place, not necessarily in and through the things that are said, but by the life that is lived and how one loves. This is the most provocative of things. Uh, but likewise, you know, the negative examples can be provocative, can draw us along a particular path that is contrary to the commandments. And so we can never see ourselves as being impervious to that. We are to love those, whatever state they might be in, but it doesn't mean that we enter into the lifestyle or into the, the habits or behaviors that then would begin to form and influence us as well. And so we are to embrace the commandments, but we are to have a kind of wisdom that comes from experience here. What does life in the world, 
show us about how the evil one works? Or what does our experience, even in our own struggle with our passions, the things that we are constantly attracted to, what does this teach us? And do we learn those lessons over time in order to avoid the things that lead to sin and embrace the things that lead to virtue? So experience is one of the great teachers. Now, again, you know, this next paragraph might strike some as humorous or might be a little jarring, but he says, do not spend time with actors and comedians so as not to corrupt your thoughts for their words cause more damage to their audience than the venom of asp. They cause old men to behave like young children and lead the young into works of iniquity. If you are in a monastery, and see certain brethren walking about in a disorderly manner and saying things that are not pleasing to God, pay no attention to them and to their words, but keep God before your eyes as it is written. I beheld the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken, Psalm 15. Do not let the devil bring temptation to your mind. If these elders have been in the monastery, and the ascetic life for a long time. What about me, who am their junior? What am I to do? But hear the Lord who says, many are called, but few are chosen. And again, are there few that be saved? So, actors and comedians. I thought this was sort of an interesting uh, selection of, of things to focus on. You know, those who become good, or skilled at you know, creating a, a falsified image or playing a role, putting on a mask. If you remember the word hypocrite means exactly that, you know, actor, uh, putting on a, a, a mask of false humility or, or false virtue, you know, playing this role of a religious individual. And so staying away from those who are actors or play the actor or comedians. So those who make light of things and, and in doing so uh, give uh, focus upon or touch upon our baser desires. You know, they, they bring up a kind of humor about uh, human nature itself uh, in order to uh, draw us into a state where we, again, lose our focus on that which is most important. And so, uh, for example, you know, Philip Neary focuses upon uh, cheer cheerfulness or joy. And yet we have to be careful about where that joy comes from, what the source of that joy is. And a person who is joyful like Philip Neary it participates in the joy of the kingdom, but also a, a kind of joy that comes from not taking oneself too seriously. You know, that Philip was able uh, with himself and with others uh, to humble himself or humble others by having them do these little embarrassing things you know, carry a dog through the streets or go to a wine shop and ask for a little bit of wine and, you know, to, to take home and have to carry it through the streets or, you know, to do, you know, or to shave half of his own beard and things like that. But he also says that, you know, our cheerfulness, our joy is not to give way to buffoonery, which slips over into not taking anything serious at all. And uh, I think this is one of the reasons that perhaps they draw attention to comedians, you know, the, the ones who are making a joke of everything that allows the, us to lose that sense of uh, solemnity, if you will, or lose this sense of seriousness about life itself and what it is that we are pursu uh, pursuing that can lead us then to make light of uh, certain sins or make light of the spiritual discipline or the life that we are living so that we begin to lose, you know, we make light of a spiritual role or certain behaviors 
and, uh, and we begin to laugh about them. Again, it's appealing to this baser aspect of who we are, and it can make us laugh about it. And in laughing about it, we lose a kind of clarity about the gravity of certain things. And so I think he, uh, Ephraim pulls these two out for this particular reason, that we can be drawn along uh, by the things that are entertaining to the imagination uh, or, or to the mind in some way, but that weakens our, our spiritual resolve and our zeal for the Lord or makes us lose that clarity of vision, that the discernment that allows us to see the truth of things. And then Carol and then Eric. Uh, was it Cassian or Climacus who also warned against joking? That I can't quite remember. I wish I, I did. I can, I can look it up and see who, who spoke about that. There are a number of saints uh, who have talked about this and about laughter and uh and you know we have to tread carefully there because laughter can be a you know human thing and be a part of the joy that we share with each other something that you you know deepens our bond with each other and uh, uh brings a kind of lightheartedness to certain situations uh but so often laughter can be at the expense of others uh, you know, it's this mockery of others and their weaknesses and their flaws. And I think this is something that the saints wouldn't want us to, to fall into. And so much of our joking does exactly that. Eric. Eric writes, follow up to Carol's, St. Benedict warned against a certain kind of joking in his role. A related quote, a friend is a second self so that our consciousness of a friend's existence makes us more fully conscious of our own existence. Yes, you know, this, there's something about friendship in the writings of the saints that's very powerful, especially in the spiritual life. And I like how Benedict puts it here, the second self, uh, you know, that there's this sort of shared consciousness of a friend's existence. Again, this shared desire for the Lord and this shared desire to experience that in all of its fullness. And in a sense, everyone, oh, is it, who are you quoting here? Aristotle. Okay, I thought you were quoting one of the saints, sorry. Uh, my, my, my mistake. But we do find similar things within the writings of the saints about friendship that there, and I think we've even come across it in either Climacus or the Evergetinos that there's nothing so precious as a friend who shares that same end, that same goal that we do. And, uh, and, and so, you know, anything I think, again, that pulls us away from that, uh, you know, that makes us lose sight of the preciousness of that and what we are pursuing is problematic. Any more thoughts about this particular paragraph? So, you know, there, there's a kind of piercing vision, I think, that the fathers gained. You know, I've, again, I'm always struck by the, how psychologically astute they are and their understanding of human nature and our character as human beings and the things that influence us, just how subtle it becomes. And then we begin to see why purity of heart is so important uh, because it does give rise, give birth to the fruit of discernment, our ability to see these movements of the mind and the heart with clarity. And uh, so, you know, reading the fathers or taking little uh, sayings out of context or simply quoting them, there's always kind of danger in that. I think we want to see the broader strokes of, of the fathers and this, the, the whole psychology, patristic psychology that comes for, uh, to us from the, these writings, that they have a particular anthropology as understanding of the human person in light of what has been revealed to us in Christ. And so even as we read them and as slow as we are reading them, I think we want to keep all this in sight, you know, that they are, are writing these things 
and writing about their own experience in light of what has been revealed to us in Christ and what our dignity and destiny is. And it comes through the ascetical life, the striving to live that, to take on the mind of Christ, then they also began to see the things that would pull them away from it. But, uh, you know, just as with the scripture, we don't want to pull things out of context uh, and, uh, you know, use them as a way of, you know, arguing with people. You know, I, I think that could equally be the tendency with the fathers as it is with the script, scriptures. So that brings us to 8.30. Anyone have any comments on what we looked at as a whole here this evening? Okay. So allow yourself to just be drawn along, I think, by the fathers in these hypotheses. And, you know, this kind of, again, the broader image that they are trying uh, to put before us and, you know, the kind of consciousness that we are to have day-to-day, moment-to-moment uh, of our life in Christ and what that means for us and all the circumstances of our daily life. Okay. So very good comments and, and questions again, once again, and uh, thank you for joining us here this evening. We'll pick up next week. And uh, for those uh, who come to the Climacus group, I'll see you on Wednesday. But when we close, as always, with the, our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to Thank God. Thank you, Father. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Thank you Father. Have a great night, everybody.